Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. The war in Afghanistan, at least for NATO, has come to an end. In August of 2021, things fell apart. The Afghan government, which the West, NATO, and even the EU to a large extent, as well as the UN, uh, it collapsed almost overnight in a number of hours. There was a huge difference between the army in 1988 and the army in 1980. Like, if the Soviets would stay there, they could stay there indefinitely, I guess, and uh, their results would be getting better and better every year. But, well, the political situation was different, so... Um, and was he basically, uh, was he mainly operating in Kunduz? Did he ever see any other part of the country? Did he fly around in a helicopter and get deployed elsewhere? Okay. Uh, Richard, so the helicopter base was added uh, to their units uh, in 1981. Um, but Alexander uh, personally didn't get, uh, didn't get a ride in a helicopter, but he's saying that the uh, special forces were usually using them at the time, so after 1981. Mm. Why was it like when you guys entered Afghanistan? So once you now went into Afghanistan as a part of this operation, um, did you guys set up camp on the mountains deep inside Afghanistan? So you said 100 kilometers, is that right? Uh, 100 kilometers, it was a zone of responsibility. So zone of responsibility of the PV troops. Uh, So first day in Afghanistan, we spent uh, in Sherhan Bandar. This is a point on the border. There was situated uh, another Mimi, Meme, uh, G, MMG. Yeah. MMG yeah. Another day, we came almost to Kunduz. We saw it. The uh, territory, we, we, we were situated on the high bank river, just before the green zone. Actually, we were, and besides, it was a road to the Soviet Union, behind us, sorry. Behind us, it was a road to the Soviet Union, so we were controlling that road. And at that point, we were situated at the moment another Meme G, and we stayed ne- uh, just uh, near with them. So in one in one point, uh, it was actually uh, two Meme Gs. Uh, I don't know why, maybe, maybe Kunduz provinces was quite... Uh, unsafe at that moment, and they uh, decided to to make a, a big garnison. We call it, yeah. Yeah, garrison. Yeah. And by the way, you know, we were in Kunduz. Was situated uh, 201st Division of yeah. Soviet Army, and uh, that division was withdrawn. The last soldier, as far as, as remember, as far as I remember, left Afghanistan on 11th or 12th of August of this division. Uh, okay. They, one battalion of that division, stayed on uh, Kunduz airfield. There was special rec- reconnaissance battalion, seven, seven hundred eighty-one, as far as I remember, number of okay. that battalion, and. Uh, that division was situated not only in Kunduz, but also uh, some regime, one regiment in Tashkurgan, uh, one regiment in Baglan, as far as I remember, and one and one regiment in Kunduz. Yes, they had uh, two towns. You know, we call it towns. Garadok town. Uh, one north, 
so-called North Town and South Town. South Town was nearby the Kunduz airfield, and North uh, Town was uh, not far from our position uh, at those times. So it, it, you know, it was like no, you know, a division. It's 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 a, it's a mighty mechanism, uh, mighty mechanism, and it disappeared. And it disappeared on two provinces, or not two, three provinces were controlled. I mean, uh, Kunduz, Tahar, and Badakhshan were controlled only by uh, PV. Right. No Soviet army. They, they pulled out, and you guys, uh, with your MMGs, came in to, to cover and hold yeah. the ground they had pulled out. So you had a huge amount of territory that you weren't, yeah. that you were supposed to cover, that they were covering before. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's right. And besides, it was uh, this road from Kunduz to Sherhan Bandar. It's like an uh, odd, odd, is it right word? Odd, mashrut, odd. Uh, oh, you mean the condition, the size of the road? <coughs> no, no. I mean that uh, they were preparing for total withdrawal, yeah, of the Soviet yeah. army. The main yes. marshrutes were two. Yes. Uh, first, from Kabul, Puli Humri. Khairaton and bridge there, and another through uh, Kandahar, Farah, Herat, and to the Soviet Union. That was, oh, okay. yeah, two main roads of withdrawal. And uh, that road was supposed to use if they will have some problems on main roads. The road that you were on was a, a secondary road, a, 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 yeah. a spare road. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. yeah right. Okay. right. Just in case, if some uh, something uh, will go wrong on that mm -hmm. road, so the troops will go that road. And just before the withdrawal, in 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 two weeks or three weeks, they mm -hmm. put a ponton. Yeah, do you know ponton? A metal bridge. Oh, metal pontoon. Bridge, pontoon. Which pontoon bridge. Yeah, a yeah. temporary yeah. bridge. Uh, yeah. Okay, yes. Got you. Got you. Yes. Right. Because uh, be before that bridge, it was uh, just a barge which were crossing the river. Sure, okay. So they made a pontoon bridge where you guys were. Yeah. They put a put pontoon bridge down. Yeah, but no, it, was, it wasn't done by us. It was special forces, special troops right. for that. Uh, we're not trained in this <laughs> extra. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, engineers yeah. and special forces yeah. would have been able to do that. We were crossing when we were entering Afghanistan. We were crossing by barge. Some kind of ship, you know, just. Sure, sure. Yeah, a river barge, uh, ferry, a yeah, ferry, yeah. Ferry, la, la, yes, yeah. right. Ferry. Uh, but uh -huh. in, in three weeks, they put that uh, ponton metal bridge. Yeah, so, so firstly, we, uh, you know, we, we are trying to frighten. Uh, local Mojahedins, because uh -huh. uh, uh, you know we when we entered uh, our position, we brought with ourselves some kind of uh, wooden rockets and wooden mm -hmm. artillery okay. and wooden mortars. You know, okay, just to show that uh, a great force are staying <laughs> here. <laughs> okay, see. Wooden weapons, wooden rockets. Yes. Okay, gotcha. And even just these wooden rockets, uh, they were put on some old trucks with that um, camouflage net. It was said to us, these rockets, if they are staying in combat position, they should be every six or eight hours. Uh, some kind of uh, work should be done on the on them. Rotation, yeah. This, no, if 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 it be real, yeah. 
if it in yeah. combat position, some yeah. uh, works yeah. are done every eight hours. If you right. are dying, if you are doing some work on that position, you should make a smoke on on the rocket, just in okay. case uh, the enemy can't see what are, what are you doing there. Right, and right, 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 and right, right, we right. were doing the same with wooden rockets, <laughs> making a smoke, then sitting inside the smoke, then <laughs> go up, <laughs> out, <laughs> something. Actually, it was that. they were trying to frighten the mujahideens to to prevent yeah. the atta attacks on on the. Gotcha. So yeah, to simulate to make if the mujahideen is watching you, to make them think that you yes. were firing. The Real rockets yes, that they were. That is a real rockets, and they are in in combat position, in combat position, and it can be launched every moment. After you know the initial six months had passed and things were different, they realized this was now turning into a counterinsurgency operation. Um, you know, NATO forces. Are, I, I was in Afghanistan in, in 2012. Um, and things were organized, at least in Helmand, where you had a big base, a bastion, uh, which had these satellite bases, uh, mobs or MOBs, um, and then, you know, satellite PBs, patrol bases, and then even beyond that, you had smaller bases, uh, you know, checkpoints and, and uh, observation posts. Uh, so you had a sort of network of bases and soldiers would be occupying a village and farmland and be within one of these things, whether it's the smaller ones or the bigger ones, the checkpoints or the, the PEBs, and would then be doing daily patrols, either on foot or on vehicles, and just dominating the ground and looking for the enemy and then also just uh, engaging the population and, and holding holding the population centers and keeping the insurgents out. Um, I, is that the same model? Did the Soviet Union have a, a, a series of, of patrol bases and, and forward operating bases, or were they more focused on cities? Uh, well, it uh, eventually became exactly the same model as you described right now. So they started off with big cities, they put their regiments in there, they gave, gave them some land, put some tents and uh, started from death. And as the war progressed, uh, they had to protect the convoys, the roads. That's how the smaller bases mm -hmm. were built and then smaller and smaller checkpoints. And yeah, they ended up having checkpoints of probably 10 people each and they would go like every one, two kilometers on the road, so the convoys would be protected. So yeah, by, let's say, mid-war, this was exactly the same situation as NATO found itself in, again, by mid-war in Afghanistan. Okay, so around 1984, 1985, around that point. Yeah, yeah, by that point there were lots of outposts, and that actually brought the fighting power of the regiments down a lot. So, uh, I guess similar to, the, uh, to what NATO did, it would be one regiment controlling some territory and being responsible for this territory. And obviously the regiment has some manpower and they had to spread it out to put these uh, people on the smaller outposts, uh, meaning they would have uh, less people to actually do some operations. So by 1987, 1988, the regiments were almost unable to do any operation themselves. So they would be like uh, separate special battalions from uh, usually from Spetsnaz or the paratroopers who would actually carry on the foot operations. <laughs> Everyone else was uh, sitting on bases and protecting this piece of land they were given to. Right. Um, just a quick question there, actually. Um, uh, for the US and for, for NATO and ISAF, uh, you know, obviously Bagram Air Base was a big, important hub 
bastion down in, in Helmand. Um, I assumed the Soviets occupied the same pieces of ground, or, or did they have uh, a different spread for their bases? Uh, as far as I know, it was almost the same ground uh, for the reasons you just mentioned. And I've been talking to some veterans of the uh, ISAF, and they said that their bases were located in the exact same, same spots as the Soviet bases, and they've been finding some Soviet militia there left from 20 years ago. Oh, well, it was 10 years at the time. So, oh, so you say munitions? Sorry, you said militias. Okay, sorry. Yeah, ammunition. <laughs> so, yeah, as, as far as I know, it was almost the same. Uh, places for the bases. So did they have showers? And I assume, oh no, so you already mentioned that they had showers. Never mind. Okay, so... Uh, they, they, uh, I can ask this again, because they would usually have uh, like a, a sauna type of thing rather than mm. showers. Yeah, yeah, just confirm. So, they had, so for the first year, I've seen that they're having showers with the, the water from the trucks or something like that, right? Uh, so, Richard, here's the situation with water and uh, washing day. Uh, uh, after the water was installed on the base, and then drilled and well, mm-hmm. became the same on the base, uh, they uh, did have uh, showers and uh, other washing equipment. Mm-hmm. And uh, every Saturday they would have uh, well, the sauna type of thing, which was compulsory. Compulsory sauna. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, that's pretty amazing. Sauna. Okay, nice. Um, all right, that's interesting. And um, were any of the locals allowed into the camp to sell them stuff? Like, we had these guys that would come in and sell uh, blankets and hats and kind of little, like, uh, you know, things that you could, I guess, I don't know what to call them, like trinkets, you know, uh, local stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you have anyone, did they have anyone that was allowed to come in and sell them stuff from the, the locals? The base was 15 kilometers away from the Polikuli city, okay. so, so the locals just didn't mm. really see the point. <laughs> okay, I see. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Richard, if, if the um, unit would go to the operation or wherever, and it would go to the city of Polikuli, they would uh, usually stop there to buy some stuff, like Coca-Cola or um, kebabs or something. Okay. And at first, uh, the locals uh, didn't want to accept the, um, what was the Soviet army currency at the time, but then they understood how it works and they uh, were fine trading for it. Oh, okay. So at first they didn't like the money, but then they traded later. Okay, for kebabs and Coca-Cola. Okay, cool. Nice, nice, nice. Okay. Um, could you describe what uh, the be- the area around the base was like? So you said Pulikumri is the, the city nearby, but that was 15 k's away. So were they in a mountainous area or was it more like a desert? Were there any farmers nearby? What did the countryside look like around their camp and where they did operations? Uh, okay, Richard, so they were located on the Kremesko-Bul road. The base was located on the uh, desert, but there were mountains around it. But it was located on a flat piece of land. Uh, so, Richard, basically nothing around the base. Mm. It was empty. Okay, okay. Just deserts. So, Richard, they were located in the, in the place which was uh, called uh, the Death Valley by the locals. And uh, apparently, when the British were there back in the day, uh, the whole regiment died there from. Uh, from the plague, 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 disease. So, plague, yeah, plague. Sorry. So, uh, so the locals didn't really like the place, so no one lived there. He said that there was like some uh, small village uh, in the mountains, about five kilometers away from the base. <laughs> that was like the closest thing to them. 
I see. Okay, so they were in a. You call it the, the dust something? The dust wally or dust wadi? Yeah, the, 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 the dust wally. Oh, Death Valley. Death Valley. Okay. So the British called it Death Valley because back in 1921 or whatever it was, 18 something, they had experienced plague and died out there. And the Afghans also had the same association with that. That's how the legend goes. Yeah. Okay, okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. I mean, was there, were there any other pieces of ground or uh, uh, like, let's say, a checkpoint or a, a fort that they used, that the British had used back in the, uh, in the day? Нет, там ничего не было, там уже сколько времени это прошло, давно, и там практически все с... Археологи какие-то были искать там что-то. Может быть, там что-то в земле и было, мы то там ничего не искали. Yeah, so then in terms of the rest of the deployment, so um, in the camp, so run me through a sort of normal day. So as a British soldier, for example, doesn't matter where you are, you could be in the field, in the camp, or you know, back at base or wherever. The first thing you do is you shave. You have to shave every day. And then you obviously have your morning routine, breakfast, and uh, you, know, you obviously uh, you know, line up and do PT or whatever. But what, what was a, a normal routine day while in the camp like in Afghanistan? Обычно подъем в 6 часов, зарядка, завтрак, через пару часов. Хорошо. Uh, so, Richard, so they would uh, wake up at 6 in the morning, uh, then uh, do some uh, physical training. After PC, they would do like washing, cleaning, shaving, all this stuff. Then breakfast, and then it would very much depend on the situation. So it would be the same... Uh, some more training during the day or preparation for for the mission or the mission itself mm-hmm. and then um, if, if there wasn't, wasn't a mission then uh, they would have uh, dinner at uh, 8 o'clock and go to bed uh, by 10. What, what was the sort of normal routine then? So it's 1980, very early in the campaign. What kind of missions uh, were they going on? What was the objective of their tours? Uh, can you repeat the last phrase? Sorry, yeah, what, what was the objective? So what kind of missions did they go on? So when they went out uh, into Afghanistan, what did they do? Routine patrols? Were they going into the mountains to find the enemy? What what kind of stuff did they go out and do? Ну, если, например, полковая проходила, то окружали как So, Richard, the usual operation at the time would be to encircle a village, which was um, considered to have uh, Mujahideens in it. And uh, then they would just come in and uh, check what's inside, check documents, check uh, mail on guys, and look for hidden weapons. And uh, that's about it. If, if, if they were shot at, then they would uh, engage in a firefight. And uh, they would usually do operations uh, in the nighttime. Mm-hmm. He obviously was in a recon unit. Did he ever sit and do a long-term observation, like an observation post onto a um, uh, enemy town or a suspected enemy town? And did he ever see the enemy? So Richard, uh, yes, he, he was engaged in an operation like like this, and he was in the reconnaissance unit in in the during his time in Afghanistan. So it's mm-hmm. continues from the training. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
and but the, the longest was uh, three days. So they, they wouldn't stay in duration for more than uh, three days because they were running out of water and food, and it's just uh, physically hard to stay in the mountains for so long. And uh, well, yes, you did see the enemy close by. So when, if they would uh, enter some houses in the night, then it's obviously not very close there. How long did you guys stay there for? And what did you do? Did you just stay in one position guarding the road? What What did you do after that? Uh, we stayed at our first place, uh, not far from the Kunduz, for almost two months. Uh, we we just we just you know mostly monitoring the situation. Yeah, uh, I mean That's some that. officer, some officer from intelligence service, as far as I understand, were. Uh, coming to our position, to, to our deployment location, and with the help of uh, two, as two BMPs with the whole staff, they were going okay. to some Kishlak, and he had a meeting there with some locals. Uh, sometimes he was passing them, sometimes no. It was different uh, Kishlaks, different villages actually, but not far from our position. We were trying not to go to this green zone, because green zone is very dangerous. Zelenka, uh, so-called. What else? We, we were going to this north camp of uh, Soviet Army Division, that because uh, we, we were trying to find some uh, wood and food, actually. Uh, okay. for Yeah, for, for ma making our, our life more comfortable, you know. Yeah. Extra supplies, extra rations, sure. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, by the way, the warehouses was wasn't empty, I should say. Mm. Warehouses of that uh, 201st division after the withdrawal of the division, they wasn't empty. They okay, left the it in, yes, I mean food, cigarettes, food and even ammo. Less and even ammo. Yeah, and uh, some of our guys they were guarding that ammo for some period of time until it was uh, bring back to the society. As far as I so, know, they he just left and don't say nobody. They didn't and, tell uh, anybody. And in some period of time, of course, Mujikidins found out that this camp is empty actually. Uh -huh. And there's some food and ammo. Right. So they they, they, they got they obviously came and took some of it, I'm sure they true. did. After that, not not our uh, memory, but us, others. They they uh, found out this. After that, they were actually guarding this sure. position. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, just on that point there, just in, in general. Uh, so you see, described older soldiers, like thirty years, maybe forty year old soldiers, arriving and and being from Central Asian republics. So. Just more broadly, I mean, obviously not all of the soldiers were from Central Asian republics. Many would have been from the Ukraine and, and from Russia proper. Um, what was the relationship in general like between between the Soviet soldiers and ordinary Afghans? Um, are we talking about the beginning of the war or generally as the war progressed? Because like this, said, let's start from the beginning and then how did it progress? How, how did things change? Uh, well, so again, at the beginning, uh, no one really knew what's happening on either sides and they were generally, I'd say, on a friendly side to each other. As the war progressed, more Afghans were killed by Soviets, more Soviets been killed by Afghans, so the relations would would get worse as time progressed. Uh, of course, uh, at the same time, uh, 
Soviets were somewhat involved in the trading with the Afghans, I mean, on a personal level. Mm-hmm. So it was, I guess the experience would be similar to what, uh, to the NATO soldiers in 2000s. So the both sides didn't really like each other, but they had to live next to each other and communicate to some extent. I see, I see. Okay, so, so obviously because of fighting, because of the war, then tensions did rise over time. Yeah, yeah, uh, tensions definitely did yeah. rise, especially for, all the, for the soldiers who been in Afghanistan for longer, so like more of their friends would be wounded or killed, they would hate Afghans more and more, and same for Afghans, but on a longer period, so like in 1979, no one been killed yet, they were fine, then like 1981, my brother was killed, I don't like Soviets anymore, and so on, so on, so on. Right, right, see. Um, Obviously, the NATO intervention was on a counterinsurgency sort of guidelines or operation. Uh, you know, the primacy of a political purpose, securing the population centers um, and undermining the insurgency um, in general. Um, was the Soviet intervention the same? Were they undermining the, you know, trying to trying to push the insurgents out of the countryside and, and secure the secure the cities, or was there something different about its approach? Well. In fact, it was the same, but they didn't plan it to be the same. They were okay. thinking more about uh, actually getting into Afghanistan and then thinking that the Afghan opposition would be very scared of such a big army with like huge tanks and airplanes and everything, that this would just give up and uh, get back to their usual life, so flee the country. And of course, we know that they didn't, so the Soviets had to stay for longer and then for longer and longer, and uh, it became a counterinsurgency operation pretty much from the beginning of the war. Well, is there any, have you ever come across something that um, showed how long they actually initially planned to be there for? What was the initial plan? The initial plan was to be there for less than half the year. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Only six months. Yeah, they they didn't plan to be there long at all. And uh, I I think that most people actually, most of those who were making these decisions, they actually believed this, that they would stay there for long. I mean, the the previous experience Soviets had was, uh, would be Prague in 1968 and then uh, Budapest in 1956. And these Mm -hmm. operations uh, took pretty much weeks, not even months. They would finish everything off and and stop the operation while well, Afghanistan was not the same at all. And um, in terms of for enjoyment and fun on the camp, what did you have? Radios, TVs? Uh, could you go outside? Could you go into Kunduz and visit the town, visit the city? Could you engage with the locals? Um, so yes, uh, Richard, they uh, did have uh, radios uh, almost in every tent. In uh, some tents uh, they would have uh, television, and every night there was like open air uh, cinema mm. for the soldiers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and it, in terms of um, engaging with the locals and going to the city, this was not really the case because uh, it was uh, basically illegal to go from the base, and they would um, only go outside, uh, well, basically for the operations or if they would need to, to get some water because in the first um, year of the um, well, of the camp being there, they didn't have uh, water on base, they had to bring it from outside. What was your relationship like with the Afghans? So while you spent those months there on the border in Kunduz there, just, just, you know, just on the edge of Afghanistan, while everyone was withdrawing, 
what was your relationship like with the locals? Did you meet any locals? Did you get to speak yes. to them, to engage with them? What was that like? Yes, of course, uh, we, we, we saw some locals. Uh, uh, mainly when we are going to somewhere to to even to speak, and besides, it was a great problem uh, the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, me personally, can't but locals, you know, yeah. we okay. we saw we saw them locals. I mean, every time we were going for some food, for some water, yeah, because yeah, yeah. uh, we were receiving it almost every day. Almost uh-huh. every day we were going for water. We saw them uh, nearby the road. Uh, mostly they were smiling to us. <laughs> we also were making also some kind of smiles, especially no children. Uh, children sometimes were trying to sell us something, uh, but they were unhappy. We don't have nothing for change, you know. <laughs> no, no change. money. Yeah. <laughs> no money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some one once. Uh, our guy using the signal pistolet, you know, signal pistolet with a meat inside, yeah? Um, he, by occasion, uh, fired their woods. They collect woods, you know, like small tribes. They collect woods and next day they should divide it. But in the night he shot from this signal pistolet. Yeah, and it's fired. It's fire. Oh, he set fire to their wood. Oh no! Next day, of course, the delegation came to our post, <laughs> <laughs> asking for you know uh, compensation, for some money, compensation. Yes. Right. 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 yes, right, right, right. You know, in our BMP, yeah, BMP, yeah, in a crew of BMP, it was a rifleman. I was also a rifleman, but uh, another he was a guy from Tajikistan. But actually, he was Uzbek, mm. not Tajik. He was Uzbek, and he knew Uzbek, Dari, and even Arabian, as far as mm. I remember. He could speak with the locals. Okay, so that guy knew that languages, and uh, he he was trying to speak with locals. But after one or two of his conversation, uh, he. Yes, he was called to the officers. Uh, ah, I remember. Yes, he was trying to speak with the locals. Uh, ju- ju- I was. Uh, I told you about these wooden rockets, yeah. Yes. Uh, he was trying. That person. He was trying to speak with the locals. When these wooden rockets was put in our location, in three or, or four weeks arrived a, a, a special. A special machine with a big, uh, a big microphone, not microphone, but speaker. Yes, with a great speaker on it, and on the, uh, his stand on this uh, high bank of the river. Yeah, and uh, there were kishlaks there, and began to announce something on uh, okay. the river. And that guy, he began to translate us. After some maybe 15-20 minutes, a big crowd. 
organized just uh, another bank river and they were you know hearing to this and then began to shout something and we asked that guy and he he, he, he and he began to shout something to to them but you know he hadn't the right to do this and uh, after after that after that speech by, by the way he said to us uh, that those uh, people said to him that this rocket they know that these rockets are wooden Oh, okay, right. <laughs> okay. And, the, and that and that also is wooden. And after this conversation, uh, he was uh, uh, taken to officers, and uh, and we began to understand uh, that he began to work on intelligence. Yes, he also uh, from time to time he spoke with the locals from the, but never, never again uh, gave us the translation of, of his speech. I see, I see, I see, I see. And in a uh, in couple of weeks, we were moved, just our BMP, one BMP from uh, the Mimiji, uh, only our crew was moved to to the other side of this uh, big camp. Uh, and there we were situated the post of uh, so-called Sarboze. Sarboze, yeah? Actually, it wasn't Serboze, it was a Dostum, Dostum fighters, Uzbek fighters. They were four former Mujahideens, but in 1987 they they decided to join the ANA, Afghan National Army. So their post was there, uh, and we were moved to this place, paid uh, 10 days there, and every day this guy was spoken with them, I mean this so-called Serboze. And as far and, and after that we understood that he's he's working on uh, on intelligence, reconnaissance or intelligence. Because after that he would never never told us what he was uh, saying. Right. Uh, the the topic of his conversation, right. and even once uh, just to explain why he is disappeared, yeah, because he was uh, taken to U.S. One day he disappeared. It was told to us he's uh, he's sick, hepatite. Oh, hepatitis. Okay. Yeah, hepatite. Yes. Uh, and even even just uh, to to make it more more true, uh, all our stuff from our blindage, I mean from our from our place where we were living in ground, yes. everything yes. was taken out and just you know disinfection was made. Right. Just to, to cover the, his coming, uh, but actually uh, in in USSR he said he, he wasn't ill, he wasn't sick, he was going to headquarter. But the topic of the conversation then in USSR headquarter, we don't know, of course. So obviously with us, uh, we had the Afghan National Army and the Afghan uh, National Police and we would be paired up with them. We would have a base right next to each other. You'd always have a checkpoint next to, right next to each other. So the Afghan National Army would have their base and we'd have ours next to it. And you'd work together on patrols. What was their relationship like with the, the Afghan forces, whether it's the police or the military? Uh, okay, uh, Richard, so uh, during the day, uh, time operations, they would uh, always come in the Afghan army and they, they would uh, always work uh, with them, uh, but uh, they would never take them for the nighttime operations and also if there was some sort of emergency, so say some unit is uh, being surround, uh, surrounded, uh, then they would just uh, go help them out without waiting for anyone, mm -hmm. so it was uh, only during the daytime. 
Afghanski When the uh, for us um, when a casualty an enemy casualty was taken so you know we, we killed one of the enemy um, it was different procedures but generally uh, we would hand over the, uh, the the body to the police the Afghan local police was it the same for them when they uh, had to hand over ca- enemy enemy killed? Uh, so Richard, during the daytime they would uh, they would give all the enemy casualties or captured uh, Japanians to the Afghan police. Okay. Um, uh, and so during the night they just wouldn't take any prisoners. They wouldn't take any prisoners. Yeah. No, no. Uh, so, so Richard. Uh, Within, on the NATO side, when the NATO operations were going, uh, you know, IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and and booby traps, as you call them, uh, once once the sort of ground had been taken, there were some you know big fights for for, for NATO early on in the war, so 2006 and 2009, uh, and then you know some small contact, but, but overall, uh, later in the war, it just became IEDs. That was the main threat: roadside bombs, IEDs, and whatnot. It was the same. I mean, it sounds like it was the same for the for the Soviets that uh, the Mujahideen didn't really want to engage in big pitched battles. They would rather just, uh, you know, bleed the Soviet Union with attrition and and small attacks and and, and booby traps and ambushes. Is is that the same style of warfare that they adopted against the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's correct. So it was pretty much the same style. Every time Mujahideens would see like a battalion strong or even the whole company, Soviet company, they wouldn't try to engage it because they know that uh, the Soviets simply had way more firepower because of the war machines and helicopters. Uh, the Mujahideens, all they had against it would be like an RPG-7 or maybe some ATGM at with the best weapon they would have. And they didn't have much of those. So, yeah, of course, they didn't want to engage a bigger and stronger force and they usually wouldn't attack them. This w- they would usually conduct some uh, attack on a single platoon or single section. It's also important to know that um, well, the regular Soviet platoon, like for paratroopers, for example, would be around 21 people. And that's mm-hmm. how it goes by the book. But uh, in Afghanistan, it was a different situation because uh, loads of people from, uh, from the regiment or battalion or even company would be absent for one reason or another, usually due to illness or injury or whatever. And uh, since... Um, the war in Afghanistan wasn't exactly considered as a war officially by Soviet government. The regiments would leave as they would leave during the peacetime. So this means that if there is a company which is supposed to have like 100 people in it, has only 50 at this time, they'll be like, whatever, this is still considered a company, they still have to do the job they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like this wouldn't be the case uh, during the wartime, like during the Second World War, because this, the company of 50 people wouldn't be considered a company anymore and it would be reformed and like let's say two companies would be merged together to form one so for Afghanistan it wasn't the case and the company which was only half size strong would still have to do the same task that the regular company would have to do so that was very common situation in the Soviet army in Afghanistan that the platoon would be the size of a section the company would be the size of a platoon and so on you said something interesting there that um uh, according to the Soviet government, this was not a war. So what did they classify the uh, operation as? Um, they classified it as the intervention to help Afghan government 
And yeah. uh, for many years, I think before 1985, 1986, uh, like the press, uh, they wouldn't say anything about the actual war. And the soldiers, when they were returning home, they were given some instructions to tell what to tell their parents, tell their friends, relatives. And uh, people generally were, didn't know much about the war in Afghanistan. So as long as you weren't conscript age male in the early 80s, you wouldn't know anything about what's going on in Afghanistan at all. And you wouldn't be even interested because the gazettes or newspapers or TV, they wouldn't talk about it much. And so for them, uh, going into these villages, um, I mean, I'll just give a story to share as well. I mean, for, for us, we rarely ever saw the enemy. The enemy was elusive. You'd never, you might only see a, a flash or some smoke from a wall. Um, you know, when they had contacts, uh, did things ever get that close where they could actually see each other while the fighting was going on, or were things also very hit and run from the enemy's side? No, um, so, uh, Richard, uh, yes, Alexander is saying that he did see the enemy because uh, the, in the common contact, it could usually be some rather short, short distance contact, mm. so they would see the enemy running from one position to another, or just stuff like that. Um, while you guys were overlooking the green zone, um, you know, what was the sort of most intense or sort of scary moment? Did you guys have any contact with the Mujahideen? Did, did any uh, combat occur while you were overwatching the withdrawal of the 201st Division? Uh, uh, actually, you know, uh, According to this uh, policy of uh, national peace, yeah, we we are not involved in any serious combat operations. Yeah, okay. of course we uh, we had some shelling and even two or three times uh, gave fire back, but it was just not seriously actually, not seriously. So very often in night, you know, uh, they were coming nearby our position, giving, you know, 10, 12, 15 shots and go back, go back, yes. Uh, and uh, only twice, twice uh, we saw them actually. It was not in night, it was in day, we saw them uh, and answered them. But in night we mostly don't answer. Uh, and by the way, in night we, we had the, that mortars with, uh, with light, you know. Yeah, they fire a mortar and the flare. The mortar is shelling, mines yeah. go out, and then a great light on yes, parachute that go down. Yeah, a flare, a flare. Okay. Light so you, you said big territory. They would, they would shell you, you would get shelled. So they, they um, was quite afraid to do this after that. So no, no serious shelling, no. No serious combat operations. I mean, um, for us, we had... Um, our biggest threat was IEDs, roadside bombs. And uh, we only had one instance where, um, you know, we had a small camp, uh, I don't know, maybe 100 guys, and the insurgency or the Taliban uh, managed to actually, you know, have so many men and so much firepower that they managed to actually get to the walls of our compound and, and take the machine guns. And they got that close that, you know, grenades were being used in close quarters. Um, did they have an attack ever like that on one of their positions? or in his unit or for himself? 
81, кажется, в марте было. Мы ходили. Значит, once in spring 1981 Хорошо, перевожу. Um, yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier, uh, IEDs, roadside bombs, uh, booby traps were our biggest um, biggest threat, and we lost uh, a number of men uh, to, to that, as well, as well as injured. What was that like for them? Was that also equally a, a big threat? Did they ever have a, did they ever witness a, an IED or a, a mine incident? No, no, just a... Italianские мины снимали. Окей, Ричард, so uh, yes, it, the mines were were a thing back then. Uh, mainly the anti-infantry Italian mines. Mm. The, the small ones, I will show you the picture later on. Uh, and uh, also the booby traps, you know, when the grenade uh, goes with a string. And yes. If you touch the string, it uh, blows off. And Alexander uh, remembers one uh, situation when uh, their uh, vehicle was um, blown by uh, a mine on the road, on a bridge actually, uh, but it was uh, lightly blown, so they uh, they were able to repair it later on. Mm -hmm. And any was it? Was anyone injured? Uh, no. See, I mean, uh, you will be able to tell us. I mean, I, I've heard some stories about big operations. Obviously, NATO also had big ops where you had a particular mission to go and clear you know, a, a valley of a particular, looking for bomb factories or, um, you know, weapons caches or opium um, farms. Uh, what were the big, what were the biggest uh, Soviet operations in the war? Uh, the biggest Soviet operations would be the operation in uh, Panchar Valley, Valley against uh, famous Ahmad Shah Masood. Uh, and uh, if I remember correctly, there were about six or seven of these operations, but uh, it's uh, kind of complicated to call them actual operations. They were more like training exercises because every time uh, Mujahideens would find out that there is operation coming out and they would find out every time, they would just flee somewhere from the area and wait until Soviets will finish off walking through the territory. And the uh, Soviets would obviously lose some people as they would carry on the operation due to mines or some booby traps or, or just, you know, general, generally how army loses people of like someone shooting someone by mistake or the car driving over someone. Right, uh, right. So these uh, big operations were almost never successful. The, they would usually end up, these uh, puncture operations uh, in particular, they wouldn't end up by Soviets uh, controlling the territory, which they would then give to the Afghan government, and then the Mujahideens would come back pretty much next day, and they would be in control of this territory again. So, in Vietnam, uh, the Americans always say that, or you know, people say, that 1968, the Tet Offensive, was the moment where uh, you know, they lost confidence that, that they, they, the idea that they weren't going to win this war uh, really set in. You know, that moment was 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 then in, in the Tet Offensive when they saw that happen across South Vietnam. Um, was there such a moment for the Soviet Union? Was there an offensive or a, a battle or a particular thing in Panjshir or elsewhere where uh, they sort of broke and they said, okay, well, we have to get out of here. This is not going to end well for us. Um, well, 
Uh, not that I'm aware of. It was uh, very much a political decision to withdraw the troops, and there wasn't really any military moment which would make the Soviet army and Soviet parties to rethink the war. But the, the army stationed in Afghanistan been getting stronger and stronger every year. So mm -hmm. the, the, there was a huge difference between the army in 1988 and the army in 1980. So the the ones in 1988, they were actually controlling most of the territory. They had uh, very well-trained uh, Ricky companies and uh, Spetsnaz companies, which uh, who could do all the operations with very high effectiveness. Uh, so they were, like, if the, if the Soviets would stay there, they could stay there indefinitely, I guess, and uh, their results would be getting better and better every year. But, well, the political situation was different, so they withdrew the troops. And, um, you know, obviously with Vietnam, the Ho Chi Minh Trail and Cambodia and Laos, um, and of course North Vietnam, is offering a safe haven for Vietnamese soldiers. And people obviously always have made the same observation of Pakistan playing a similar role in the Afghan war. Um, I assume you agree with that. Were there any operations? Because the US obviously flew into Pakistan to kill Osama bin Laden. Um, were there any similar operations by the Soviet Union into Pakistan, obviously into the havens, the safe havens that they had in Pakistan? Uh, well, there are some talks about uh, Spetsnaz unit actually getting in the foreign territory, which was back. Pakistan and Iran and doing some operations there, but I don't believe these uh, are true because the Soviets, uh, well, the Soviet army and Soviet party definitely didn't allow anything like that to happen. And every time the Soviet soldiers would get into those territory of Pakistan and Iran, and this actually happened quite a lot of times because they don't have any border between them. So they were just like a convoy would be going on the road, going on the road, going on the road, then seeing some big city with loads of lights and started looking at the maps and going on the radio station asking like, where exactly are we? And they'd be like, well, you're not far away from Peshawar, you know, and you should probably turn around because well, we're not in, in the war with Pakistan and <laughs> we can probably get a lot of trouble with that. Uh, so so there's some accidents where they actually accidentally invaded Pakistan? Yeah, yeah, there, there were quite a few, quite a few. Okay. You read uh, soldiers' memoirs, and you can get it here and there. I think some of them making them up, but uh, definitely ha some of them actually happened. Just because the, the, there is no proper border between these countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, for for the Afghanis, it was definitely easy to get into any of those countries, especially on if if they go through the, some mountain roads, you know, where no security at all. Mm -hmm. But, but yes, so the, the Soviets definitely didn't invade Iran or Pakistan for that reason. Right, right, right. Uh, of course, Pakistan has uh, had nuclear weapons. Uh, yeah. So not, a, not a good idea. Yes. So um, so I guess you said there wasn't really a Tet offensive moment where they, they, their morale was broken. So it was more of an attrition and probably has more to do with uh, perestroika, glasnost, uh, revisionism, and, and obviously the the counter movements in, in Poland and Eastern Europe that had more to do with wanting to get out and, and try and centralize and, and calm everything down, I suppose. Uh, well, that's uh, another one of, the, one of those questions which is um, discussed and there is no uh, no proper answer to it or no definite answer to it. But uh, I believe it was uh, it is similar to what happened to, to the Afghanistan uh, now as we speak. So the Soviets just got tired of it, really. Because, uh, yes, the Soviets did control the roads, they did, uh, they've been good in doing the operations, 
but uh, nothing was really changing in terms of um, Afghan government. The Afghan government wasn't getting any stronger. The Mujahideens were actually getting stronger. So uh, to stay in Afghanistan for longer means meant for Soviets that they needed uh, to get more troops involved, spend more money, and they didn't really see the reasoning behind it at this point. So I mean. They could potentially, you no, know, just invade Afghanistan properly and say, okay, this is our territory now, but they didn't really want it because just why add another 30 million people to the country for no reason? And uh, uh, so they just, I think they just got tired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so you, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, as you said, there's lots of different competing voices as to uh, why they pulled out and whether. Uh, you know, it had a role in the in the collapse of the Soviet Union. But at least from your analysis, you're saying that it was the same as what we've just seen in, in Afghanistan recently, that uh, 10 years of war and the dominance around and, and, and uh, basically they, they didn't see the point in continuing. There wasn't any more progress. Yeah, there were okay. no progress. And uh, did they have call in air support for that? or uh, And also just in general, I mean, obviously everyone talks about the hind helicopters and stuff. When they had one of these villages, or maybe on that attack, did he ever get to call in an airstrike or witness an airstrike or a helicopter tra- attack being called in, or maybe an artillery strike? Did uh, did he ever witness anything like that or get a, a chance to see some of that? No, the helicopters were very well. No, we had with us. Okay, Richard. So uh, yes, this was a usual thing, but would you, in most cases, this would be helicopters rather than uh, airplanes. Okay, so they would call in airstrikes and stuff like that too, I suppose, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, they would uh, always have uh, one person from the air support who would uh, call in the targets for the helicopter crews. That is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. 
To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.